Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the uh, Future Perfect Talks. This one is of huge relevance in so many domains. It's uh, on micromobility. Micromobility is not just a big part of the future of cities and human habitation. It's a big part of the uh, unfolding story of tech. What is it for? How does it work? How does it get out of the digital domain into the real world? And we have four of the uh, most exciting leaders in this space right now. Um, what I'll ask you to do is introduce yourself, introduce yourselves briefly one by one and then we will um sort of head off up the up the path of content perhaps start with you horace just a very quick briefing on who you are and, and and your background and then we'll we'll bring more of of what you're up to into the conversation as we go along okay great thank you um uh, i hope this is yeah uh, this is working yes i can see um the yeah my my uh my um claim here is that I, I coined the term micromobility, um, but that's not equivalent to saying I invented it. I mean, all, all I did was give it a name, uh, which was a phenomenon that I observed uh, with beginning with uh, bike sharing. And then um, when I came up with the name, that that's more or less all that was going on. And then scooters came around and, and I thought it was better to put everything under one uh one uh, name so that so that we we would be able to talk about this as a phenomenon as opposed to dividing conquering all these uh, other sub markets that that uh, historically have, uh, have allowed the automotive world to declare itself dominant because all the other worlds are too small individually um and right. if, if you if you do the right thing and and combine uh, the the what I call micromobility into one it's it, it turns out to be huge and and mm -hmm. growing very quickly so mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I'm uh, my only contribution well I, I I'm also now a, a partner at a venture capital firm I've uh, co-founded a company that did bike sharing and I also run a conference called uh, micromobility. Uh, uh, industries, or rather, the the, the, the companies call that, and we run conferences to bring together the community of, of people who are building the actual uh, industry. Brilliant, thank you, Sampo. So my name is Sampo Hietanen. Uh, it's a Finnish name. Don't try to pronounce it. Uh, Horace coined the term micromobility, so I coined the concept of of mobility as a service, and uh, currently run a run a company called Mass Global, which is the makers of WIM, the world's first mobility as a service operator. Uh, Adam. Um, so my name is Adam Ways, and I sadly cannot claim to have invented any terms, <laughs> um, unfortunately, so I feel a little bit out of my league here. Uh, I uh, am uh, basically a, a bicycle manufacturer and I came into the bicycle world in an odd way in that I was trying to buy a racing bike um, and suddenly discovered that I had no idea how to go about it and there didn't seem to be any standard way that one could um, really get into it. Uh, and figure out what one was supposed to buy, why, and how, and where. Uh, so we are now producing uh, road racing bicycles uh, in carbon composite, and I think that we may be one of the only ones 
who are producing uh, by molding composites and doing so in Europe. Um, so we came about this sort of in a strange way, but we are the only ones, I think, right now outside of Asia to own our own tools and to have developed our own engineering uh, tools. Great. Adam, you managed to give the most boring possible introduction to what is an epic <laughs> fact, is that you did a Victor Kayam in the road racing, road bike space, and you couldn't find the bike you wanted, so you invented it. Adam, Adam's company is the, is the founder and designer of the world's lightest and according to a Tour de France previous winner, the world's best uh, road bike. So I will do your introductions for you guys if you don't nail it. All right, Caro, shoot. Wow, um, I don't know how to follow up after that. Uh, so <laughs> my name is uh, Caroline Yelm. Don't try to pronounce that either. Uh, I am the interim VP growth at Voy Technology. Uh, we have not coined uh, any new uh, words or invented, you know, <laughs> any new type of vehicle. However, we are responsible for bringing the electric scooters to the streets of Europe. Um, we started the company back in 2018, so uh, um, yeah, a little bit over three years back, and we are now operating in over 70 cities um, around Europe. Brilliant. Um, okay, so let, let's take a, a couple of steps back before we, we get, kind of start going through the details. Maybe we'll, we'll end up, you know, leaning a bit more on, on you, Horace, for the for these first steps than others. But um, what is the um, the place of micro mobility in the history of, as it were, modern modern mobility? Um, you, you've given a version of it already, Horace, which is you know getting the narrative away from cars. But is there any more kind of organic way to describe how? sub-car mobility has come about? Is, is, is there a historical framework there, Horace? Uh, absolutely. So, in fact, you know, we can even sub-define micromobility because I've, uh, it gets pulled in so many directions. I, you, you can talk about ancient micromobility, which is actually the bicycle. It's, pre, uh, uh, it's, it's pre-automobile. It's, it's, uh, it actually gave us the, the infrastructure for the automobile, the first, uh, the first paved roads were, were, were demanded by cycle users. The pneumatic tire was invented for the bicycle. And, and many of the pioneers in the automotive industry began as pioneers in the, in the cycling industry. And so in many ways, we, we, we've, been, uh, we've had micro-mobility for, for, uh, for over a century and a half. But the other part of it is that with the injection of electric power, it's being transformed. And with the injection of computing power, it's being transformed yet again. Mm. So we've had e-bikes, but now we're getting smart e-bikes. We're getting mm. uh, bikes with, with more, more in sensing in them than, uh, than or, and not just bikes too. Right? You know, of course, we're, we're talking about scooters. We're talking about three wheels. We're talking about mm. four wheels. We're talking about things that are mobilizing the developing world. The fact that the two-wheelers are more popular in India than, than four. The, the, you know, and as taxis as well. In, if you go to Nigeria, if you go to Africa in general, you, you'll see um, micro everywhere. And the, um, my observation is that um, it's, a, it's a very analogous to the, to, the, to the rise of the smartphone, which is really a micro, micro computer. Um, and the, the idea of having a pocket-sized device that was you know, able to not just be used as a phone, but as as a as a browser and as a 
as, as a media player. All these things transformed our lives. And I lived through that period. I was actually in that business for a while. And, and I just see a lot of deja vu when, we, when it comes mm-hmm. to injecting the same technology that brought, it, brought phones into the hands of, of billions of people, now bringing mm-hmm. mobility into the hands of billions of people that actually do not have any today. Bearing mm-hmm. in mind, by the way, automobility only addresses about a billion people. It's a sure. billion people in the world who have the money and the infrastructure around them to go around with these massive hunks of steel um, to, to, to travel anywhere. And that's, that's not sc- scalable. And um, it's, they, they've taken over a century to get to that level of penetration, which is one in eight people on the planet. Uh, the phones went from zero to far more to over 4 billion people in, in, in a decade. So I see that, you know, this is why I sometimes say the smaller it is, the faster it goes, or the, 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 the smaller is generally the, the better bet. Um, and, and so, yeah, micromobility for me um, is a, a way to shine a light on all of these humble vehicles, humble ideas as far as how to get people moving. And mm-hmm. it's not just the, the wealthy and the young who can do this, but it's going to be increasingly mm-hmm. the whole world. And that's why I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. So, so Carol, we'll come to you in a second. Sampo, um, let me let me frame a version of this question to you slightly provocatively. Why didn't you invent the fries micromobility? I mean, is it because, as Horace is implying in, in, in what he's saying, that there has basically been a kind of evolution to the point that we have computation on board, we have battery de- you know, energy density, that we can invent this new form factor, or the new form factor becomes visible? Or did you, did you just forget to, to discover that discover it somehow? <laughs> no, I think it was it was discovered before this. I kind of see it this way that it's the it's the missing part in the in the link that we've um, with with mass as itself. Uh, the idea has been that what what would it take to compete against the car ownership? Like Horace said, it, it is about the freedom of mobility, and if you boil down to really the root of it, it's this anywhere, anytime, on a whim, and. Uh, and nothing out there can actually yet alone compete against it, and uh, and because you need all all the different modes, not even micro mobility. But what what's been missing out of this when first I'm thinking about okay, so what would I need to com- compete against the car ownership? And it's 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 these short uh, in inside the city part that has been missing, and also the cool part. So sort of the, the the fun of how do you bring about a smile to people? Uh, because if it's just, you know, taxi and bus that you have to have to make the mass out of, then it's not, not so cool. And you can't come up with everything. But I, I'd like to pick up on a, a bit of another point that Forrest said. There's there's one thing and, and hopefully getting this from uh, from Boy also is one good thing happened because of the mobile phones and and because of companies like Voy, uh, is that these these e-scooters and nowadays more more electric bikes and and e-mopeds and such. Uh, what really worried me as a as a transport engineer is that we get new means of transportation and people will start stocking up, and they will have gazillion e-scooters in their backyards and e-bikes and the car and this and this and this. Gladly, because of what technology enables, the the, the really even bigger thing than the micromobility itself came from this uh, sharing. 
that they are those resources are much better utilized than uh, than cars, for example. I bet you that boy doesn't have a usage of four percent, which the privately owned vehicle at the moment has. And this mm. is even actually bigger than the means of transportation. What is happening mm. through through micro mobility now? Because my, micro mobility yeah. came to the world shared, not owned. It was really close, actually. Yeah, Caro, um, uh, do you feel that you have been able to create Voy as part of the dynamic? So let's bring two dynamics into play, the, as it were, technical evolution of the form factor. So it's computationally rich or rich enough and it has a certain you know, technical capacity with modern batteries. And it's part of a sharing dynamic, which itself is enabled by the Internet. Would you, would you say th those two phenomena have enabled Void to exist or would you be, would you be um, leasing cars if you could? I mean, wh where are you at with mobility yourself? <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, it's um, obviously two big enablers. And also just to revert back to what you said, Sampo, uh, micromobility has uh, maybe not been like the most cool way of traveling around previously. I mean, the car in itself has been such a symbol of power, of like being rich, of like uh, having high status. And uh, for the last century, it's just been increasing, right? So uh, I think, you know, in addition to, uh, to uh, those two factors that you mentioned, um, I think another thing that's really helped us is that, you know, people are starting to realize that congestion and space consumptions, uh, you know, noise, pollution, all of those things are major issues and we want less of it in our cities. We want uh, mm. cities with, you know, a less stressful environment. And mm. I think that in combination with, um, you know, sharing becoming a bigger thing through, um through you know, services like Airbnb, people are getting more used to, to the sharing economy as well as getting better smartphones. Uh, you know, people are becoming more climate conscious, really. And uh, mm. many of the people, I think, in my generation, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 28, uh, but I probably will never own a car. Um, and, uh, you know, services like ours, services like WIM, um, and services and you know better bikes etc uh, will cater to this new demand that uh, people want right now we want greener ways to get around the, the cities and uh, services like ours are really like being enabled to provide those types of uh, or our types of services now which we haven't been previously and um, um, I think in addition to that uh, people are really being fed up with uh, the congestion and space consumptions uh, in in the European cities, mainly. Yeah, uh, Adam. I mean, so so back to the story about about you wanting a bike. What what is it that makes you want? What is it that made you want to have a great bike that is so great? Nothing satisfied you. Had to invent a bike company, but um, what, what also do you think that says about culture that people who have you know, skills, wealth, you know, autonomy are just moving beyond the idea that a car is the thing that you buy when you reach a certain level of, you know, capability. Well, I think, um, okay, there are a number of, of different elements in the question you just asked. Um, I, th I think that the, the first part that comes to mind for me um, is that just uh, in terms of the cycling market itself, there was just an ocean 
of products that seemed largely undifferentiated and uh, rather uninteresting. So I don't know that that necessarily is relevant, but I think that um, what became clear to me was that uh, there was a clear segment of the market that started asking questions about what products were available and what purpose they served. Hmm. And uh, for me, the uh, part that I started to wonder about more was um, uh, the role of uh, cycling in my life. I had never really been that much of a cyclist. Hmm. Um, But I found myself looking at cycling as being uh, actually, in this case, really uh, uh, a fitness device, mm-hmm. a sports device, mm-hmm. and a, um, a means of then actually participating in an activity mm-hmm. with other people. I do, I do think those two dimensions are, you know, they, they are additive to what, you know, the, the rest of you guys are saying, which is that the, the quality of the device, right, finding something that in brand and quality terms is just impeccable, but also opens people out to the health and the cultural dimensions of cycling that is well beyond what historically up until relatively recently we associated them with. Either it's very, very high-end sport or it's for kids, right? Or just, you know, a cheap form of, of you know, logistics, I mean, of, of commuting where you get wet. But, you know, you, what you're, I think, speaking to in your own experience and the bike that you're offering is, 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 is way more than that. So it's another sort of breakout opportunity for micromobility, broadly speaking. Do, do we have a definition, right? I'm going to kind of cycle through you guys a few times to kind of to lay the ground for the rest of the conversation. Do we have a definition, Horace? Would you, you've invented the word, but are you confident to invent a definition of what micromobility is or is not? Or is it broadly a broad mm. category? Can we be precise about what it is? Yeah, it's a tough one because it's it, no matter how you try to do it, there'll be people who will want to change that definition. It's it's never sufficient. Um, mm. But the, I think what what I try to define is what it is necessary to be micromobility. Right? It's it's yeah. not enough. But I what I've chosen also for the sake of simplicity is to define it define it by the vehicle. Uh, so it's it's independent of the service or model of or ownership or or as as sample point put it out you know owned versus shared, it's independent of that. It's also independent of whether it's motorized or not, which uh, again yeah. many people wanted to to exclude uh, you know purely human powered devices. I mean like a, the traditional bicycle, but I said no, let's keep it in. Um, it also doesn't necessarily exclude the power source being uh, internal combustion, because frankly, if you look at the developing world, as I said, you know, most of those two wheelers are still uh, powered by gasoline, but that will change. But we want to be inclusive of them and folks who are who are in that world today. So my definition was simply that it's, uh, it's any vehicle that is weighs less than 500 kilograms. And it's, mm-hmm. it's also that caused an outcry because people said, well, that would include some very heavy things from some, some almost car-sized vehicles. And indeed, that was my point, is that the industry of automotive will struggles to actually shrink itself. It, it, it mm-hmm. has, over time, begun to have this obesity <laughs> epidemic of its own, and it's, it's increasingly getting heavier and heavier. 
But historically, there was a, you know, there was a floor uh, which which was still touchable for them, which was 500 kilos. And and what I had in mind was the Fiat 500 from 1956 or so, the the original Cinquecento, which was this adorable yes. car that everybody loves, and yes. that actually weighed 500 kilograms. And we cannot mm-hmm. make one today. It's impossible mm-hmm. with all the technology mm-hmm. we have in mm-hmm. the industry itself. Mm-hmm. Spending billions mm-hmm. cannot make that car today, mostly mm-hmm. because it's illegal to do so. Therefore, I said, fine, let's, let's see what, what can exist in that empty space below. And in fact, 99% of all the vehicles, of course, are under 100 kilograms, but still I give headroom. And I say, well, if someday we'll have five passengers in the micro vehicle, let it be. So, so I, I just want to give that design freedom to anyone who wants to say we're part of the community. We yeah, want to make it really interesting. this size. I do, think, I do think that's helpful. I mean, I think one of the problems with micromobility and, and most of the debates around these kinds of sort of, you know, step changes in, in, in industrial mode, whether it's for convenience or health or city design or sustainability, whatever it is, or just quality, there's a sort of exclusion narrative, which is unnecessary. Oh, you, the car guys can't play in this space. You've got to, you know, you've got to be the old guys. You wrote an article in um, uh, Micromobility World, which which led to a longer article by um, Jean-Louis Gasset uh, um, in his blog thing, which was very interesting, essentially saying, look, if Apple's going to do a car, right, y- y- he was echoing you and, you know, building on mm. it, that it's going to be a bit more like a BMW C1 wraparound motorbike or even a bicycle, right? Mm. Um, and that feels interesting, whereby there's no point saying it is or isn't a car. Let's just assume that the form factor and the footprint is going to be massively reduced, right? Mm. Well, indeed, and that, that's my, that was my, uh, uh, that is my hope. It's, if it's not Apple, then I hope someone on a large scale right, exactly. can execute on something in that scale. And of course, there are, there are now Twizy and others who are, you know, at, roughly at that point of, of uh, size. But the, the way, another way to think about it is let's allocate no more to the vehicle than we do to the person. So if a person mm-hmm. as a payload is 100 kilos plus their, their, you know, their luggage or whatnot, let's not make the vehicle weigh much more than that on a per person basis. This is, this is why mm-hmm. I, I think it it's, should be sized to the human uh, uh, size and, and, and thus be inherently efficient because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cargo bikes are, are able to carry more than, than today's SUVs almost. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like this, this, uh, this, this uh, efficiency that we need to actually live. Mm-hmm. And, and again, mm-hmm. I, I think, Caro, you mentioned uh, the, the, the fact that this is an environmentally uh, very sound idea. And more and more, I'm, uh, I'm trying to make this point as well, because the, the, this is about climate action. Many of the people who are uh, currently very active in that world are not aware even that micromobility yeah, exactly. is a possibility. And we need mm. to educate mm. those in, the, in policymaking and those in, in, in industry that, hey, mm. there is another way than automating mm. your, your electric car um, mm. to make an impact with transportation and climate. So yeah. I, I, this, this, this mm. is order of magnitude better. Sampa, do you Sampa, do you feel that um you in a second, Adam? Sampa, do you feel that when you when you're scoping, because when you build WIM, right, you have to decide what it's for. And when you have customers, you have to tell them what it's for. Are you explicitly working out in your head which form factors or types of micromobility can be included in WIM when you're just like whatever shows up will include? Do you and how specific is your sense of it from exactly where you are at? Well, the thing is, you, you kind of have to go at it from two perspectives. Uh, the, the, the trick of making 
uh, going up against the car is, and, and at the same time building up on, on sustainability has to do with, you have to uh, decouple the pricing element from production cost. Now right. for, for pricing uh, so far, before actually Voy and others came along, we didn't have much of fun factors. Well, what we tend to forget in all of this is that let's remember out of household cost, uh, about 20% is mobility. Out of that, about seventy-six percent is is consumed by the by the, by the privately owned vehicles. So it, it consumes quite a big chunk of this. For us, the the biggest key for all of this is we need to liberate that money to be able to also uh, develop everything else. So for that for that part of for the for the price perception, so far the only thing we've had is giving people fancier cars, kind of saying that okay, if you give up your own car. When you do drive, uh, let let us put you into a fancier one. Now, with micro mobility, with all these cool services that come along, we're starting to see other types of raising the price price perception. Now, on the on the other hand, uh, it's it's the production cost. Now, if you decouple price from production cost, which is you have to admire your opponent, that's what the car does so beautifully. Uh, is is then we have to be able to have those those things we can convert people into. And the more we have, uh, where where you know, just using public transport alone will not cut it. People will not be settled with that. So we need a lot of other things to to complement that. And that's where where micro mobility kicks in. On on the other hand, in in some ways, I I remember actually a discussion in um, in Stockholm with Fredrik Jelm and uh, in uh, looking at how we give people. You could you could compare that with a buffet. So we give you a buffet filled with everything and of course we would not like them to eat the jumbo shrimps all the time so <laughs> i remember frederick saying it nicely so we understand we're the potato in your buffet but <laughs> 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 a beautiful about a beautiful potato we'll, 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 we'll come back actually to, to kind of multimodal issues in, in a second but Kara, do you, when you look at the mar- when you look at the um, the sort of technical options for vehicles maybe this is not your specific sort of focus but do you feel that voy is um is having to make strategic choices as to which form factors to work on. Are you just like seeing when scooters works, trying bicycles? I mean, how how much does the micro mobility space as a whole interest you across different form factors and concepts? I mean, uh, a lot, right? Uh, mm. We we started with the e-scooter um, because uh, a little bit like Sampo was saying, um, we wanted to kind of give people an alternative that we thought uh, that they were going to love, uh, that they were going to have, you know, fun on. Uh, and, you know, in order for us to really provide a, a a proper alternative to short car and taxi trips in the city, we knew that we had to, like, provide something that uh, people were actually going to think was fun to use, because otherwise it's uh, it's always hard to force someone uh, to, to change their behavior, right? Um, and uh, at the moment, we are operating e-scooters and e-bikes, um, but of course, like we have uh, research going on continuously on what the new type of micromobility vehicle would be that we can launch that our users want, because mm-hmm. um, that in the end is is the most important and like the key thing here. We need to provide micromobility that people in European cities want to ride on. Otherwise, mm. uh, what are we doing it for? Uh, it's mm. not going to help us change the world. Mm. Uh, so um, I think uh, that, of course, in combination with, as uh, Sampo was mentioning as well, uh, public transportation, because 
micromobility is one part, but I firmly believe that public transport is and should continue to be the backbone of sustainable urban um, mobility. Uh, mm. Micromobility is like from what I uh, from the way I see it, not competing at all with public mm. transport. It's a complement mm. to public mm. transport. So the people. I, I'd go even further. I go even further because what's exciting about micro is that it is such a good uh, uh, complement to many other things because it's conformable. I, I use this word. It's conformable to the environment around it. So it yeah. adapts itself as opposed to the car, which actually expects the environment to adapt to it. It is actually mm. requires a new environment made for itself. And it yeah. doesn't yeah. play well with others. You cannot yeah. do easily a multimodal trip using the car because of all the hassles mm. of parking and all the hassles yeah, exactly. of switching the mode. But not only is a micro vehicle convenient enough for you to hop on and off at the beginning and end of your journey, but mm. you can even take it with you if you own it and, and oh. you can fold it and you can carry it and so on and so on. You can throw it in the back of your car if you even wish to take the car part of the way. Yeah. All of this yeah. is possible because it's small. And that is true, by the way, again, with the phone. It made, mm. it made itself more uh, mm. uh, usable because it was more conformable. And I think the same parallel applies. I completely I mean, agree a, with you, Horace. Yeah, this I, I, is I, a really good point. Sorry, carry oh, go on. Go ahead, uh, John. Saying, go Sampa. ahead, John, first. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to cut you off because actually I'm going I'm I'm to bring in Adam's logistics work in a second. But so carry on in your thought. Look, look this is um, going on with the phone. I, I, I've had conversations with the, with the guys uh, from Nokia that, that there, there's a couple of points that are really important in this. One of them is we're changing the industry. Every, everybody knows that eventually it's the car ownership that in in this in a, in a macroeconomic it, it will be the one losing because it's it's the king at the moment that takes out most of it. Uh, the question is how will that happen? Now, one of the biggest things that I think we all are responsible within the ecosystem is that we probably do not like the industry to become a utility, and that was the, that was the biggest fear that the guys from Nokia told me that look. Uh, car industry, once again, they've done so well. You have to admire with so many things that they've done well. One of them is that in what actually is a relatively boring thing of you know just your transport has become something completely different. Most of the value in the market actually does not lie with rationale. It lies on emotional. Otherwise, people would not be buying cars or if they would, they would buy the cheapest car. And, and the difference between cheap and what they buy is humongous. So um, we none of us do want that this becomes a boring utility business where, you know, people do not care how they go about it. We want the fun factor in. It's also how to convert people out of the cars. This is extremely important and why, boy, why what you guys, John, what you're doing is so vital to all of this. I mean, the second part has to do with the cities. Yeah, oh, sorry. So back, back to the back to the um, back to the uh, just to touch on the on the on the Roto piece. I mean that that is partly what you have solved with Roto. I mean Roto is like I think the te the Tesla to some extent, at least in the narrative of making it sexy. I mean everyone that's ridden a Roto bike says, "Where has this been all my life?" And it's the most astonishing, you know, sort of binary experience before and after riding this Roto bike thing. But actually, what it does to your point, Sampo, is it wakes people up. 
to what cycling and I think more broadly what alternative you know sub car mobility micro mobility can do for people's lives and sort of conceptions or you know it's, it's the sex and, and excitement factor going from the sex and excitement factor something that's quite boring but Adam you're about to make it very sexy what are you doing in logistics right because one of the one of the dimensions I mean conformability um, as Horace describes it for you know, micromobility on the person in the personal realm is very interesting because it means that you don't have to have cars down at the street level in more and more cases. But actually, one of the, the biggest offenders in disrupting street level life in on an in, increasingly is logistics vehicles, right? Uh, what what is your how are you bringing micromobility into that space, Adam? So uh, I will answer that, but I have a, a quick question though first. Uh, Actually, for all of you, um, I when I think of micromobility, I actually, for me at least, there's also a distance traveled dimension. Mm, um, interesting. I, I, I don't know uh, how you all think about that. But for me, uh, micromobility doesn't really work beyond a certain distance, at least in my mind. But I don't know. That may not be the way you see things. Oh yes, let me just jump right in because I, I I'm sorry this I, I'm this what got me started. I observed I, I I got a hold of a graph which showed the, the probability of trip distances. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a graph that tells you roughly how many of a certain trip distance you're going to take. So the most probable distance. Even for a car user, is less than uh, uh, two miles, and I, you know, let's say three kilometers, <laughs> and 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 it's it was shocking to me when I saw that graph. It's very, it's not a normal bell curve, but it's skewed mm. towards zero. So the most common mm. trips are short. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't long trips. And I think you, that's exactly what the point being made here is that the micromobility is very well positioned on short trips. The more power you give the user, the longer they'll go. So if you have an mm. e-bike user, they'll go faster and they'll go further. Mm. And mm. if you have a, a, you know, like a motorized, you know, throttle-based vehicle, like a scooter, an electric scooter, you will go probably even further still. But mm. exactly right. It is small. No one's going to use their iPhone to do uh, spreadsheets. And there are still needs for, for doing spreadsheets. And so my, my point is, again, that micro isn't about replacing all the journeys that people have today, but rather mm -hmm. complementing and swapping the short trips yeah, exactly. out from the car. They're the worst trips. They're also the worst for sharing, the worst for the environment, they're worst for, for uh, all the resources. So anyway, sorry. So... Well, actually, uh, thank you very much. I, <laughs> of course, I think that that's actually really interesting. Um, and it's one of the things that uh, I would say I've even started to observe with our bike customers. And that is that uh, I've always, I, I've started to think of uh, cars as being um, longer distance uh, vehicles that, at least in the past, it was sort of a one-size-fits-all. Um, you know, cars used for these incredibly short trips where it's wildly inefficient in terms of uh, energy uh, use and, and resources. But um, there's been a shift, I think, uh, that we've observed um, with some of our customers in their uh, allocation of uh, disposable income away from 
maybe spending more money on buying a premium automobile and instead looking at buying um, higher performing uh, alternative uh, means of transportation, but that may be used not only for transportation, but also uh, for sports, leisure, mm. enjoyment, mm. things like that. Um, but this also led um, us into uh, thinking a little bit, uh, using the, the, the thought process, processes that we had used um, in developing our bicycles and coming up with a form factor uh, that we thought made the most sense um, into looking at how we would try to approach uh, a logistics vehicle and the, just the concept of where it would fit into uh, the distribution system. And that basically uh, is that... Uh, we've developed uh, the idea for a, a platform uh, of an electric vehicle, which then can be dimensioned very easily uh, for its intended purpose. So uh, it becomes very easy for us to scale uh, this vehicle up to carry a larger load um, but really, we're looking primarily at vehicles that are going to be uh, the most useful in, say, 10-kilometer trips or less. Mm -hmm. um, because that's, of course, the, the generally the distance that we see in urban environments. I mean, one of the, one of the ways in which we've connected, Adam, is because the, the, the company I've been working on, Last Meter, basically says to real estate operators and to a lesser extent cities that, that the service resolution, revolution that's happening in retail will end up becoming, to use a technical word, a bit like uh, conformable in Harris's, com a composable proposition of real estate. Real estate will say we want to have mobility attached to our property. We want to have laundry. We want to have other services in the way that they you know, think about current infrastructure. But to do that relies on there being a much more responsible and responsive logistics industry. Right now, real estate owners are expected to deal with infinite random packages and random people and random vehicles just rocking up on the sidewalk. And that's all changing, right? There is a crunch point at which what we call the last meter crunch becomes signals the need for something more structured. And I think one of the main benefits- I was hearing you, Adam, but I don't hear anyone else now. Do you hear anyone else? Oh, well, the cycle form factor for logistics is a massive opportunity. It's exactly as conformable in the logistics space as micromobility is in the personal mobility space. And that I think is the discovery that's happening in the marketplace Right now, but back to the transit question for a second. I mean, I, I like the idea um, that both you, Sampo, and you, Caro, say that you know, transit and micromobility are best friends. Is it really true, right? I'm just going to play devil's advocate here for a second because historically, one of the reasons, for, one of the arguments for public transport, just to kind of put my cards on the table, I've, I've worked on our public transport policy for the United Nations. I negotiated <laughs> a convention that did not happen for the United Nations um, at the OECD um, on you know, pan-European transport policy, which is how I become a transport policy nerd, among other nerdiness. Um, and when I was doing that, multi-mobility um, uh, tra tra transport policy was focused on essentially getting people out of not just cars, but personal vehicles into public vehicles or shared vehicles. Mm. And your kind of sharing carrier is a bit different from sharing you know, the, the carrier of a, of a of a tram or or a metro train and so forth and so let me ask you this specifically to you and to, to you Sampo and you Kara how do we is, is it necessary to talk about 
to, 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 to retain the distinction between sharing in what we call, what in my research we call synchronic sharing, i.e. people in the same vehicle at the same time, or diachronic sharing, people sharing a thing over time, like scooters, mm. or are we all moving in the same direction? Because historically we would have said, well, you know, it's still personal vehicles, it's still selfish, we need to get people into, you know, you know, shared objects. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think uh, from my perspective, they go hand in hand, right? Because uh, for, I mean, looking at uh, the world in the last one and a half year, right? Uh, there's few people that wanted to get into a crammed uh, bus or um, or metro cart. And hence, we need other types of shared mobility to, uh, to be a support when, for example, public transportation isn't working as it should or doesn't take you all the way. Um, I mean, from from surveys and uh, uh, research that we've done uh, from Voy, we know that more than one in three Voy rides are made in combination with public transportation trips. I mean, of course, I I also understand that some of the Voy trips do replace, you know, a, a probably a bus ride or a mm-hmm. a tram ride, but uh, we also see that they go hand in hand and that there is a need for both in the future if we want to create less car dependent cities. Mm-hmm. Um, Sampo, do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say um, this is pretty obvious, but there, there are of course steps in it. Uh, even before before Roy with just city bikes, we, we did a bigger study on, on this and 42% of of city bike trips uh, were coupled with, with public transport because we could actually see the ride. Uh, this is the, the good part of math that we could really do that. We're we're just uh, trying to get some data to to back it up a bit more with with Voy uh, from this summer's data in in some of those places. But it's it's pretty obvious. Now we, we tend to kind of put these, which is a bit silly to me. We we tend to put these different modes of transportation uh, in into competition, which in the minds of people it is not. Uh, let, let's face it. We need to put the put the question correctly. Uh, it is. The, the privately owned vehicle against everything else. And, and unless we do it this way, we're going to end up in sub-optimizing all kinds of things. And and, and how, how do we get to that? Because when you start having something as precious, something as worthy as car ownership, you can start building on, and you can start, then there's a spinning of the model split wheel and, and, and fixing the model split arbitrage much better. But you have to first face the thing that is there anything as valuable as the car ownership. And, and for that, we need we need everything. And none of those, none of the modes alone, none of the service providers alone will be good enough. So you need all of that. Now, um, then it comes comes down also to how pluggable the public transport system is. My thesis is that the post uh, car ownership cities that that are now now, if you look at look at really how the cities are structured, whether it's Stockholm or Mexico City or whatever it is. You structure it around corridors. All the policies that actually have a lot of money ha- are, are talking about corridors. And this is really car related. The whole structure of the city is around uh, ring roads and, and the motorways and so on. Whereas in, in the future, if you really want to function in a city, uh, you, you need everybody, most likely you will need to do an interchange. That means that the, the way you structure the city is around hubs not mm. corridors and interconnected hubs that that whether it's a whether it's a boy or your beautiful luxurious uh, bike or or your mm. shared car or taxi or whatever it is mm. but it'll plug you into a hub and that hub needs to be pluggable but even more so it has to be the best part of your day because this is the biggest friction over there and, and we're not really there yet 
but but with all of these modes, we start to be much better. I mean, the car will be a big part of it. Uh, yeah. Karo, you live in you live in Sweden. I live in Finland, where where we ask people, what would I have to promise to you for uh, getting rid of your car? And they say, yeah, I could, but you know. We have these summer houses. I, I, I need to be able to go to summer house. <laughs> On average, Finns and Swedes, we do that five times a year. But when you do buy into the system of car, then you then you tend to use it. And, and that's where the vicious circle starts. So we need to be able to give them that. Now, what we've had as, a, as an actual tangible issue in, in, um, in, our, in our services is that, look, if you don't have a car, the next question is, well, am I going to be able to get into a car? And in, in some places you have access everywhere into the in, enough car share availability, but most places you don't. So the thing is, uh, how do you get into that car mm-hmm. if, if you have to go to a rental, if you, can, if you have to walk mm-hmm. two kilometers? And that's mm-hmm. a bit too stressy. That's, mm-hmm. where the, the, that's where the micromobility comes in. So it's no longer a problem because you can, you can smile and take a void to the car place uh, and then <laughs> pick that. up the car and go to, go to your summer house. That's how you do it. Yes, that's so, how we do it. So I have a, a question, though, uh, there. And w- w- technologically, we're not there yet. But it seems to me that some of what you're pointing to now um, could, at least in theory in the future, uh, be addressed through self-driving cars. Uh, to the extent that then the issue of the car ownership starts to uh, go away because the freedom that you would have by owning a car today and that freedom to go to your summer house five times a year um, whenever you choose, if there's a self-driving car, which yes. then can be okay. available... I'm going to intervene here and, and, and head off the AV conversation. Yes. Because, because if we went into the AV conversation and broader mobility conversation, this conversation would go from two hours to seven and we'd be fighting by the end, level five when. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back maybe probably at, at the end towards basically what is the role for tech more generally. I mean, and so we'll, I don't want to squash the whole thing, but I'm, I'm anxious we don't go into AV too soon. But let me ask you this more, one more provocative question, Karen, because we'll, I'll set it up and we'll kind of come back to it a bit. And, and Adam, I want your take on this. Um, one of the issues, right, as you know, as micromobility becomes more part of the modal split, right? And you've kind of said it yourself, Karen, that it's very much aligned with public transit. The provocative question I have for you is why isn't it public transit? Because what ends up happening, as you well know, in the markets where you know scooters are becoming stable, is that the public sector starts reducing the number of companies that can have a license to operate because otherwise it's just too many. The competition does not serve the city. And then it might get down to the point where there's one concession. If we take bike share, there is one concession which you may or may not have have. You won it and then something went wrong. But um, the question I have for you is why should private companies have essentially what ought to be public monopolies or natural monopolies? I mean, it's a bit provocative, right? But you see where I'm heading with it. Yeah, and I I think it's a very valid and a very good question. And I mean... um... I would say overall what we what we want and what we are continuously pushing for is getting balanced regulation in all markets um, where you know a tender model is a way that many cities are going towards right now where they select one or two or three uh, operators based on like criteria that they put together and then they award the best operators with uh, uh, fixed term contracts right and uh, this gives cities I think a good opportunity to work with the best and ensure that the operators are responsible that the operators are compliant 
it allows uh, you know us as Voy to invest more long term in cities. So yeah. building those big uh, um, uh, you know well working relationships as well as mm. you know investing in infrastructure and partnerships and uh, job opportunities. Uh, but it also I think and to the most important thing for me is that it also allows for a really good user experience because then mm. you know a user doesn't have to have 10 apps uh, mm. you can you can download one or two mm. um, and uh, you know that's that's the way that we think that the industry will move forward and that mm. we're seeing that type of um, mm. regulatory changes now yeah. coming all over I would say. Brilliant. Adam, we've had this conversation a bunch of times ourselves and with, with others. I mean, my, my, just to kind of summarize, I think the way that last mile logistics in cities is going to go is that ultimately one of the big factors is going to be what I call po post 2.0. I mean, I'm seem to be the only person saying this, but it seems very obvious is that the public sector is going to say, okay, we are going to subsidize a channel and offer it as a public concession. And very similarly, they offer a concession of a natural monopoly to scooter companies and say, can you help us fix our logistics? We'll do daily, price daily delivery, subsidized or at least price controlled, um, because otherwise it's just chaos in the city for logistics. Your business model, you know, to create a kind of technical platform, just, just to kind of get into this theme a little bit, because we won't go too deep, but, we'll, but just to kind of touch on it. Do you think that your logistics platform is best offered as a sort of, you know, buy the mile, but you know, pay as you go kind of consumer experience or you know, experience business business experience, or is it at a big concession? Is it, is it a big platform that you sell and in, 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 in response to a large public sector tender or some other you know, commercial tender? How do you feel your kind of platform approach to logistics is going to play out in the market? Um, <laughs> that, that's a really tough question for me to answer. Um, what I think <laughs> is that, um, uh, the, the logistics platform, I think, um, is probably going to be more specific to, um, uh, to the customer. I don't think that it's necessarily going to go through um, more of a public tender-like mm -hmm. approach. Okay. From my point of view, it mm -hmm. makes much more sense... Um, that it, that the logistics companies themselves would then make that uh, decision, or they would then essentially be negotiating right, I get uh, it. with you, the city. You, you are selling to logistics companies, correct? Right? That's your that, that's okay. more of the channel that we're looking at yeah. because yeah. it's not an industry otherwise that I have any experience with. Yeah, it, it's Sampa, Back on the multimodality issue, my question to you is. Is it happening yet? And if not, why not? Because when I, so I don't drive a car, right? I, I am I'm older than you, Caro, but I've never driven a car because I think that they're instruments of death. And I think they're incredibly inefficient for people that live in cities. And I've always thought it's wrong headed, so I just don't do it. I've hey, never looked, yeah. it's never been a problem for me. So I've always thought, and it's one of the reasons I liked transfer policy in, in the beginning, that multimodality was obviously going to solve the problem of people being obsessed by cars because it's so convenient. What's going on, Sampa? Why is it not accelerating faster? I, I think multimodality is happening as we speak all the time. Uh, okay. Like Caro said, and we know pe people are cross-using those. We are we're all cross-users. We we do many of us use a lot of different modes all, all the time. Mm -hmm. 
the sad part is that the 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 part of a multimodal user is completely underserved it is mm. way too inconvenient if we compare it with mm. a car we mm. really haven't servitized it we still have to go into this debate should the multimodality be offered by 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 the city or authority mm. uh, let's face it uh, that that would be a, a wet dream for a transport planner that people would mm. be like ants and you, you would move them around in the most efficient way Look, mm. it didn't happen. People kind of like their freedom and, and why cars are so dominant and why people love mm. those cars is because mm. I choose my car. Um, mm. it, it takes a bit of time to to get the ecosystem up and running, to to make the multimodality so extremely cool, simple, mm. seamless, convenient that, mm. that those people that really want to be multimodal uh, do not have to choose it. They want to choose it. Uh, mm. Having said that, I, uh, I personally, I, I am from, from this industry. It's gone much faster than I would have predicted some 10 years mm. ago. Uh, it took a bit of time for cars to come around as well, really. Mm. If you remember when they were born and when they started being mass-produced and, and, mass mm. and so on. Uh, if we look at it from that perspective, if, if we really are in competition with that, and, and the competition is of the minds and, and wallets of the people, then I think we're moving really fast. Mm. So if what, if one of the challenges, right, is making multi-mobility sort of, you know, identity forming and as sexy as, as car ownership, would a couple of ideas, I mean, these are random ideas that I'm generating in real time here, would one idea be to attach, you know, access to rollo bikes to a mobility subscription? It's not, a, it's not a commuting bike, but it is an amazing weekend leisure and sport bike. And then think crazy things like, you know, weekends to go and drive around the Nürburgring, Nürburgring whatever it's called, the Formula One track, because it satisfies people's demand for high quality mobility. Or if not, is there any way to make multi-modality sexy? Or is it just a commodity proposition we just have to get people used to? No, I, there's a lot of ways of making it sexy. And, and, and this is where, you know, when, when starting with all of this, we, we didn't have all the bits and parts. If we compare it with a car, we were kind of trying to make a car, but we didn't have a steering wheel or we didn't have these and these things. Uh, now we start having much more of this. And this is where why, why voice and others are so important to make multimodality much more cooler and, and more sellable. But there's a lot of ways we can we can actually go about it. I mean, even using the cars as such is to say that, look, even though people do buy a nice car, but when I when I ask people how many have their dream cars, there's not many, not many hands up outside of Abu Dhabi. Now we can do and say, hey, look, if you're okay using boys and public transport and bikes and, and cool things this much, we can get you into a more fancy car. But it is then, mm -hmm. you, you touched the point that it's really important. We're, we're lacking a bit of uh, Tesla of mobility. We, we're lacking these kind of cool elements. Cool, cool types of bikes is definitely a thing. It starts to be more and more hipster thing. Uh, you, wanna, mm -hmm. you want to have access to that fancy, fancy mm -hmm. e-bike that you, you would not be able to afford. And being in a club of the, really the multimodal club, you can actually have that access to it every now and then. I, I see volocopters coming in. The thing is that you kind of feel the luxurious part that every now and then you you can really feel like a, feel like the king of the town by by being being uh, being brought by a fancy car or somebody drives you with a with yeah. a cool cool bike. Yeah. Horace, do you here. think that micromobility is going to be like, is there, is there a way to make micromobility the sexy, definitive, like, thing that takes multimodality from being a kind of 
optional approach for um, cities, which it has been, although Sampo is making it more essential to making it definitively the thing that every city must have and do well. Is micromobility going to drive already, that revolution? I think it's already doing that. I mean, just look around those cities where Void, for example, is people are smiling using them because it's so cool. Cool yeah. things. I was asking Horace. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, was asking, I know what you think. What does Horace think? <laughs> So again, this micro. Uh, to me, the, the the premise of micro is not to uh, to take all the burdens of transport in a city. It's going to handle very well short trips. It's going to handle very well multi uh, or trip chains or multimodality. And mm. and it, the the thing that's the thing that's great about it. Here's another aspect that's marvelous, is that there's so many experiments going on. There are so many companies. There are so many ideas. There are so many form factors. There are so many um, um, engineering and and marketing efforts going on that it feels like will you know there will be some uh, uh, you know interesting developments. Of course, there'll be. A lot of failures as well as during during last year we've seen many many companies exiting the, the space because they could make it uh, but that's the nature of any early industry when the auto industry got was born there were three thousand automakers in the united states alone three thousand when the dot-com era was born as we all remember it probably is that there were hundreds if not thousands of dot-com uh you know uh bubbles um mm -hmm. so it, it's we're at that stage right now, so it's it's um, it's it's essentially um, a, a working process and um, or work in progress, I should say. And it, it, I think a lot of ideas will emerge that are pretty pretty clever. Uh, and mostly to do with incentives, mostly to do with mm -hmm. with you know how to uh, uh, incentivize uh, the system to 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 change. But, but more, more specifically, right? So, do you I mean so? It's it, it's it's maybe implied in what you just said. But do you feel that multimodality will will provide that kind of kick, the sexiness and optionality that will get, um, if you like, multi uh, multimodality out of the the entropy well of the private car, right? Where policy trans, urban transport policy is kind of stuck. Mm. Okay, so here's an example where what needs to be fixed, and I think Sampo is at the forefront of this, and that is providing an easy interface. To, so that people don't have to worry about ticketing or or, exactly. or uh, yeah. dealing with 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 the whole with the whole friction involved with multimodality. So if you can if you can eliminate that aspect of, of uh, uh, how to how to pay for things, right? So 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 bundling what is essentially unbundled with respect to modality, but at the same time unbundling the car into multiple modes, but allowing yeah. you to to sort of fluidly or you know be very liquid about it. That's the thing. The other thing, by the way, that's mm -hmm. super exciting, which I, I don't know if you guys talked about, but it, it's to do with with uh, discovery. And this is a, this is actually what I, I I call maps the 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 browser of micromobility. And if you remember in the in the beginning of the computer or the the internet era, we had the browser wars, which is like who's going to control that entry point into the internet, which is which you know between Internet Explorer and Netscape, and later we had you know, uh, 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 mm. Firefox and Chrome and uh, Safari. Mm. Mm. But the, 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 the point about micro is that the discovery of the route, the discovery of how to get there, perhaps mm. through a multimodal approach, 
has to be exposed via a map. And, the, 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 you know, the, that's where people say, I want to go somewhere. And then you go being given options. And every uh, service out there has its own maps. And, and Google is playing kingmaker now with sort of exposing some service companies and not others. It should be much more transparent about who gets to be uh, visible on Google Maps or on Apple Maps. All of this has to get sorted. So I, I see I see a few open problems there, not to mention mm -hmm. the uh, operational issues. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one thing just to say, um, uh, Horace, I, I can't be the first person that says this, actually, it's incredibly welcome that you are bringing into the mobility debate concepts from technology, like as it were, classic technology, digital technology and computation that for some reason are missing, right? The concept of discoverability of a service, mm -hmm. right, is very obvious in the digital realm and somehow not so Absolutely. obvious in other domains, also, right? Here's another thing that blows my mind because people went through this in the computing and internet worlds decades ago. So, for example, mm -hmm. monetization. How do you pay for the internet? You have to pay for it through mostly through advertising. It may not be the best way to do it, but it happened to be the convenient way of doing it early on. And we sort of mm -hmm. still carrying forward, but subscriptions are starting to be used now. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, we, we, we sort of stumbled our way into the internet with, with various models, search mm -hmm. and, and all these things to do with, with, with uh, uh, search ranking and, and mm -hmm. playing games with mm -hmm. algorithms, okay? Mm -hmm. Now think about, mm -hmm. the, 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 this is, again, this is, I, I can't believe it's, it's, if I want to go A to B, why aren't there five people, uh, you know, conducting an auction to offer me exactly. an yeah. alternative routes. Some of them may be fast, mm -hmm. some of them may be cheap, mm -hmm. some of them may be convenient. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I may have preferences or it, I may mm -hmm. just get incentives. And you know what? At the end of the day, I expect to be paid to take that journey. Mm -hmm. That will happen mm -hmm. because you're almost <laughs> being paid to take, to take a, an internet mm -hmm. journey. Do you yeah, know exactly. when you join the internet where you end up? No. Do you yeah. do you know where you might end up when you take a journey in the mm -hmm. physical world? It's mm -hmm. almost obvious that you, of course, you know mm -hmm. where to go, but somebody will pay to redirect you. So mm -hmm. the, the entire business model of transportation now mm -hmm. is on is positioned on the premise that it's extremely mm -hmm. expensive to move things and people, mm -hmm. and therefore mm -hmm. we cannot mess around with redirection. We cannot mess around with new monetization. So it somehow mm -hmm. has to be you pay per mile. And I said mm -hmm. all along, we're going to pay for smiles and we're going to yeah. pay to be satisfied. And we're going to be paid, paying, paying yeah. as users for things that we didn't think were yeah. part of the transportation matrix. Now, when we yeah. achieve these things, then you'll see the world change. Mm. Sampo, I know you've got to go. I'm just going to try and cram a few questions in. I mean, the, 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 the first two I want to share, I want you to kind of touch on, and maybe if you have time, touch on the third, which will be, you know, addressing Horace's issue, Horace's opportunity space of pricing innovation and so forth and discovery. But just two, two practical things to help us set, set us up for the rest of the conversation. Do you feel, Sampo, that mobility as a service, all right, is a is a composable proposition for people's work and home lives. And what I'm getting at here is is our last meeting model where we are saying to real estate, it's moving slower than I would like, but the logic is unfolding. People are coming to us now 
we, we say to real estate, you should have, you know, laundry, mobility, you know, grocery delivery in the same way that you have electricity and the same way you have, you know, you have water. In, it, it's a subscription process that is infrastructurally connected. Do you think mobility is getting to the point where that's meaningful? Can you supply mobility on demand in that way? So first question. Second question is about urban stuff. Um, how do cities redefine themselves around multi-mobility? But let's start with the first thing about composability of services for real estate operators. Uh, you mean real estate, you said? Yeah, real estate. I mean, work, workplaces or in, yes. you know, environments for living, should mobility be attached to them in the same way that electricity is attached to them? Yes, is the simple answer. <laughs> uh, and, and the reality is we, we, we always think about these from the industry perspective, but we, we're talking about people's lives and, and where, where we can ease off some, some pain and stress, we, we should be doing it. The, the obvious way, way to combine uh, mobility with your, with your real estate is with your living. Why? Because your car tends to spend most of its day uh, on your own parking space and people kind of combine it naturally. We've been doing this in, in Tokyo, in Japan, with the real estate giant Mitsu Furosan and really encouraging. This is where I think definitely in the industry is going. Uh, people kind of get it. But okay, together with my rent, I pay for my mobility options. Uh, the rationale behind is, is a bit more complex. Why it's so important is because it, it has an impact on the cities, it has an impact on the infrastructure, it has all of this, and, and there are cross benefits in this. Now, as real estate developers cannot start building places without parking spaces because they fear that, okay, well, this guy may be happy with, uh, with, without the parking space and without a car, but what if the, that one uh, sells the apartment to someone else and they want the parking space? So unless we have mobility as a service providers like us, and unless it's also a competitive field where people can, can trust, like you can trust that cars, you can be able to buy a car in a year's time. You can be able to buy and choose your car in a year's time. I mean, when people call us, I, I get a lot of this, that people call me and say, look, I'm giving up my car. Can you guarantee that you're going to be here in a year's time? Uh, yeah. So they need actually a market, the real estate developers, they need a market of mass providers before they can really yeah, start exactly. changing. But the, but the benefits mm -hmm. are humongous because I calculated just in Helsinki where I live uh, that they, real estate developers make losses from 10 to 50,000 euros mm -hmm. per parking space. Now, mm -hmm. if we, anything that they can put into proper use, we have a lot to actually uh, mm -hmm. give people free, free mobility mm -hmm. for. The other part is actually with your living, uh, we realize that you're not going to churn out of a mobility subscription, even if you don't use it that much. If you mm -hmm. see the the means of transportation within the within the compounds of your of, mm -hmm. of your property, so you see a whim car, you see a whim okay. scooter around, yeah. you see that okay, I could. The biggest money actually lies with the car, lies with the I could, not mm. with the I use. Same from those points, right? Because I'm going to make the best use of your time before you go. It, w w do you see that there's a, there are simple vectors or simple uh, sort of um, narratives of transformation for urban design? Do you think that the 15-minute city is something that micromobility and multi I mean, sort of multimodal options around micromobility is going to be a big piece of, or is it going to be a smaller piece? I mean, how, how much can you contribute to making cities more compact and just better designed? I think it's a it's a humongous step we're taking with the 15 minute city. I, oh, hold, I think hold, hold, hold on one second. I just want to say it's a unique and delightful experience to hear a Finn use the word humongous. Please carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's a humongous <laughs> chance for all, for all this. Why I love it is uh, you know uh, the, 
maybe the peak of my career was when we were in we were presented in uh, in uh, the museum of design in new york the smithsonian and on the other side was something that actually did change the world as a vision that was the futurama year 39 in new york world exhibition and that that really mm-hmm. changed how we build our cities and on the other side was mm-hmm. the future of of cities that was whim so of course it was a big thing for me look what, what we've been lacking out of this is we have these uh, sub-optimized visions of micro mobility car shares uh uber has their own and so on but none of them are so appealing like the futurama was and mm-hmm. and maybe the 15 minute city has this this chance of being the futurama 2.0 that every mm. politician, every every voter, everyone says, okay, well, this is what we want. This is definitely what we're going to, because we do need, and I, I, I bet you that that Caro will say the same thing, that we do need to start thinking about the infrastructure. The infrastructure is not allowing micromobility and multimodality to reach its peak yet. Mm. Oh, so one last question for you, Horace. Um raised i mean a whole a whole raft of issues very quickly i can see that it's something that animates him basically thinking through actual technology uh through technological lenses of how these things evolve but let me ask you those two questions about discoverability and then pricing innovation let's start with pricing innovation i mean i would have thought that what exactly horace is describing which is that people are competing or clusters of providers are competing to facilitate your journey and you're paying for the smile of the journey rather than the mile of the journey is it something that you can do or rather why are you not doing that can't you do this kind of like supermarket i mean supermarket i mean super hyphen market of pricing inside your system was that just annoying everybody we're we're doing that all all the time already but let's Mm. let's face it uh your daily mobility is not the same thing as ebookers you might go on a trip uh, maybe once every two months, once in every quarter or, or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, your daily mm-hmm. mobility, you're bound to do three to four trips per day. Um, if, if we compare it, we started doing the analogy with the telecom industry, which I, I, I like mm-hmm. that analogy. Um, would you like to, every time you make a call, would you like to have a list of different operators and their terms and such? Or would you like mm. your operator just to connect you without any <laughs> No, no, no. It is about connecting people. We're well, just I, I don't understand. Like, I, so it's like, it's like Clippy. It's like Microsoft Clippy. I, you're trying to make a call to the United States. Would you like me to supply you with five other services? No, just make me make the call. Exactly. And, and I, I suppose people really, uh, what we also see is people really value their convenience and ease of use. Mm-hmm. And that comes when just, uh, look, let's think about the car. It, it doesn't ask you for options. It just turns mm-hmm. ignites. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's true. I do think that, though, I mean, I think Horace is definitely touching on something, which is that, you know, kind of once when these systems are more composable, there is more holistic innovation capability. Right. I think that's that's true. And I think we'll get there eventually. Um, Carrie, you've got your hat. Sorry, carry on. If if I may just follow up, because I think that's a good point. It is if it's the same thing every day, you don't want to be redirected. But one in three trips might be that you're doing it for recreational for, or for entertainment for other reasons. And also, even those days when you are doing the same thing, we want the possibility to perhaps have something lively happen. Um, one of the interesting things about cars, let me just take another dig at this. Car autonomy is all about looking down. The idea of autonomous cars is don't look out the window, which you do because you have to you know, as a driver, 
look inside the car where you're going to have a plethora of entertainment options. So let's cocoon you and mm. isolate you from the world during that mm. journey so it mm. makes it mm. seem like it's shorter, even mm. though you might be stuck in traffic the whole time. Mm. Micromobility is the exact opposite. Micromobility mm. invites you to look up. It invites you to look around. It invites you to explore. Mm. And then it invites you to stop and extend your journey. Make it longer. Mm. Make it make it so mm. that that's the smile, is that you're prompted mm. to stop at a shop on the way home or mm. a cafe or to meet a friend. Mm. All of this mm. is the exact antithesis of, of what autonomy is about. And this is what yeah. it, it riles me, because they want to isolate us. And I think we should be together in cities. We should be in taking advantage of the fact we're in a community, mm-hmm. and that's what micromobility will enable. I, th- I think. I think they want to. So, so you know, uh, some of the this, along those lines, right? The, the the app or the service that has actually experimented with that a bit, I think, is City Mapper. Right? The City Mapper app has actually tried to make something of the route choice algorithm more than just we're going to get you there. Right, it has not been you know well, it's not been a very developed product, but they've at least tried to make it interesting, you know how you choose your because it's essentially a multimodal uh, route finding thing. Um, Carrie, you've got your hand up on the system. Yes, and actually uh, now Horace, that that you mentioned it, I think that's such a good point. I mean, micro mobility uh, allows you in to a much larger extent to explore the city and the environment that you're living in, right? And then, you know, the question is, what type of city do we want that to be? Um, and going back to the 15-minute city and uh, what uh, what Sampo said about uh, creating these hubs, I think if we can, or I mean, micromobility is an enabler of the 15-minute city, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we uh, can, if micromobility grows and we who live in cities use micromobility to a larger extent, we don't have to have as much spaces for cars. And when we uh, we remove parking spaces or roads for cars in the inner cities, our cities uh, can become places for people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, places that are living. Uh, it can become, you know, cafes, parks, uh, places for recreation. And I think that is to me, what really is the power of micromobility because it actually enables us to have a proper alternative and really look beyond, you know, the the big metal boxes that spit out poisonous gas that take up more than 50% of the space in the cities. And uh, uh, I get very passionate about this topic, as you might uh, hear, but I think that's what really is the power of micromobility. Adam, on the logistics piece, sorry, yeah, Adam, on on the logistics piece, do you feel, give me some sense of how you think that the urban form and cycle-based or micromobility-based logistics should co-evolve? Right, because you've been thinking about that a lot. So it seems to me that to begin with, um, one of the things that makes it um, kind of sexy, at least for me, is if you start looking at micromobility as a system, and there are all of these different elements that then have to work together. That's what Sampo was also referring to, the, the, the mm. friction points and mm. being able then to reduce them. But there has to be that kind of choice. There are times when, mm. for example, I want to go out and be able to explore mm. uh, parts of the city or learn more about it. And then there are the other times when I'm just in an incredible rush and I just need to get mm. from point A to point B. I think that when it comes to 
logistics, which is only one part of what we've been looking at. I mean, that's just one of the form factors that we've been trying to, to solve for. Um, I think that there, those friction points are different from the ones that we're describing in terms of, uh, say, user-based micromobility. Um, because yeah. the logistics network is a dedicated uh, delivery channel, which is somewhat separate, I think, from mm -hmm. what we're otherwise really talking about. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's not, in that sense, not really the same. But I think that mm -hmm. when, if we're looking at our ideas about micromobility and the way one gets around, um, mm. I think that we're then looking at uh, the need to develop certain standards and yeah. to have to develop a common language around what the form factors can do and need to yeah. do. Now, so I'll give you some sort of reflections on, 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 on these things from my own perspective. So, so one of the things we do as part of Last Meeting, we, we, we design buildings architecturally with developers who want to integrate services. And what we point out to them is that the more they want to integrate services, the more design opportunity they have, but also the more risk they have if they don't design things well, right? So if what you want is a highly integrated delivery opportunity for the building, you've got to make sure that the access regime, how building users, building uh, inhabitants get into the building versus how logistics people get into the building. Uh, and one of the things that we have emphasized is the opportunity for psychologistics to get much closer to a building and actually be inside the building infrastructure. So inside the, you know, in the Swedish uh, format, the gore, the, the yard, um, in a way that is safe and is acceptable and is even delightful. Um, and so if you have, you know, micromobility based logistics, you can facilitate much closer and more convenient, more convivial logistics where, you know, the, the logistics guy can come to the back of the building, you can come to the front of the building. And so there's, there's lots of kind of spatial implications where this goes in some, to some extent in, 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 in real estate design is what happens to the parking spaces, right? Sample was describing that they are underperforming in financial terms. Well, that leads, which is really interesting, is, is, is regulatory requirements on parking allocation. So one thing I would commend to you gurus and heroes of micromobility is please speak to the regulators around what they... Um, require because you know ar architects and technologists on the on the real estate design and platformization side are desperate for the regulations to change so we can design new opportunities that systematically include you and also infrastructure provision right because when it so another dimension here which is much harder to solve from the level of um just solo real estate development is charging points, right? If you want a charging point for electric vehicles, which facilitates the use of, you know, electric micromobility for, you know, sharing use, logistics use or whatever, we can't, a real estate uh, developer cannot do that you know, on their own. They can't just pick a stand and hope it's going to work. So we do need a convergence in infrastructural terms, up, you know, in the regulated, in the in a regulated way. There's another issue where I would, you know, commend micromobility to go knock on the door of the regulators and say, get this standard set so real estate developers know what to put in right anyway i mean i think there's lots of ways in which these things converge because you talk about you know the, the the system adam what i absolutely want to see and it's great that you're you know leading on this horace is is that the debate gets to the level of regulation and policy not just tech innovation and social choice right because mobility is one of the issues where you cannot blast your way through with just tech 
it's highly driven by regulatory standards and public infrastructure. Um, and so the way that you were all conducting the conversation, how you, Caro, are talking about, you know, the role of transit in relation to micromobility and public concessions, now you're talking about systems, Adam, and how you yourself, Horace, are raising the conversation at a very high level with the, with the, with the conference is all fantastic. I mean, I know Sampo is all over this because he's been working with the public sector since the very beginning. On the point of regulation and standards, because we, we're going to have to touch on this, it's a difficult question. Cara, what's going on with safety, right? I don't mean, are you working on it as hard as you can? Because that I will take for granted. What I mean is, where do you feel liability lies? And what is the correct regulatory pathway for uh, safety? Uh, what, where's the liability lie? And where, does the, where is the pathway for safety and micromobility? Because unlike cars, they are inherently more risky for the person on a certain, of a, on a certain analysis. Where, where are you at with that? Um, I mean, I think, uh, and back to your point, right, I'm talking uh, about uh, policy and regulation, what I think, uh, you know, in the end, right, e-scooters and micromobility, um, electrified micromobility is something that's quite new. Uh, people are still getting used to the means of transportation and us as operators, of course, we have a um, reliability to do um, the best we can in educating the users how to use them, where to use them, and you know, uh, what uh, if, if you need to be over 18, if you need to like what rules and uh, regulations apply, right? But what becomes really tricky is that in many markets that we operate, there isn't really any clear regulations right. for our means of uh, transportation, and then it becomes tricky for us as operators, it becomes tricky for the users to say the least. and you know, in many instances as well, we see um, regulators and uh, politicians struggling quite a bit as well because they don't really have the power to um, promote and continue to develop uh, this new means of transportation together with us. So, uh, you know, in addition to that, I think what we really need in order to make micromobility as a whole a more safe uh, than it is today uh, modes of transportation. We really need uh, bold politicians to go out and change regulations. We need them to go out and uh, really, you know, change infrastructure in cities because today most of the European cities uh, where we operate at least, they are built for cars. They aren't built for micromobility. So of course it's more dangerous for people that move around on, you know, light electric vehicles than people that sit in, you know, a, a big metal box if there's a collision between the two. And hence, you know, that's really what we are pushing for. Um, you know, changes in regulations so that it's more clear, uh, but also and mainly, um, bigger investments in safe infrastructure for micromobility, both electrified and non-electrified. On, on a related question, right, I, I promise you that the tough questions will end at some point, but it's important to get these ones out. Do you, Where are you at on liability for scooters that have been left in the street? That's a separate question. It's both liability of just street, you know, stuff, who's responsible for this, but also safety around scooters that are in the street. Where are you at on that? Because it's a separate question. It's not about the users having safety or a regulatory regime about them, it's about the role of the scooter as an object in, in space. 
I mean, I think uh, that's also a very good question. I feel like I get all of the tough questions. Yeah, but you like, do. No, I mean, no, that's, that's, that's just question. it's true. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, and I think I mean uh, back to my previous point. Like it's a three-year-old industry, right? And with the you know the amount of growth that we've had for those three years, of course, with that uh, comes pain points such as parking uh, and like inexperienced rider behavior and uh, regulations have really been lagging behind in in many markets but we're seeing both an increased demand from policymakers and from um, um, regulators to work with us to uh, to make this better mm. and i think in terms of the scooters that, that that are out in the street of course it's our responsibility mm. um and uh, we continuously self-regulate since there's no real regulation anywhere mm. uh, and innovate to make our service more user-friendly and tackle like these big pain points because mm. like i'm um, of course, I know that uh, the service isn't perfect, but uh, I believe that uh, you know what we're trying to do here is something bigger, and there will be some, you know, th- there will be some bumps in the road. But uh, uh, I'd rather have uh, you know ten thousand e-scooters than ten thousand cars in a city. Yeah. Uh, what's going to be more yeah. safe for yeah. your health? I, Probably the e-scooters, not yeah. the car. Yeah, I, w- I would say that that's. I think that is the most important argument. Is there are all sorts of issues around scooters, but they are just a tiny, tiny fraction of a fraction of the health and social and infrastructure costs of or sort of uh, external costs of cars. Um, also, I do think that you saying we're responsible and working with the public sector induces trust. Right, that isn't what Uber and other innovators in this space have said. They've basically said, "Well, look, wherever it's everyone's on their own. We're just trying to grow." I think your narrative here is actually. I'm sure that the policymakers and the public, the public sector and the public at large will find this attractive. Horace, in terms of regulation, um, you may have other things you want, to, you want to share just now, but but in terms of regulation, where, where do you feel that is at in the conversation? Is it is the, is there a conversation on regulating micromobility advanced? Is it, a, is it a necessary piece of change? How much positive change can regulation contribute? Anything to do with transport is going to require regulation. But then again, anything that happened in telecommunications was regulated. As we know, it mm-hmm. didn't uh, It didn't impede, uh, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. it accelerated. Um, I, I do uh, often interact with people who are coming from policy, and I hear their, their concerns. They have very valid concerns. Now, this issue of safety, I wanted to also touch on a bit. Uh, of course, it, and, and the burden is on 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 it, I think on on the operator um, to some degree it's unfair because the infrastructure is far more important than than uh, the the you know this very young uh, technology. But but let me say a, a note of optimism here because it, because of the speed of change, we've only been at this for two years. Because of the iteration speed of the vehicle, of the service, of the of the potentially the intelligence in the system, both on the server and on the on the device, because of the speed, uh, I anticipate we're going to get some interesting innovation happening in safety. And and one of the exciting things that is is on the horizon is this idea of actually in, empowering the user with more awareness. And you can do that through uh, what is now also in the computing world forward as augmented reality. And you, no one in the computing world knows quite what is the killer app for augmented reality. And of course, I have it. It's micromobility. Everyone who's wearing a helmet, and, and now it's considered something you don't want to wear, 
but it will be something that most people will want to wear. Why? Because it will make them feel like superhumans. Why? Because they're going to have projected in their on their on their visor all this information about again their journey and potentially their threats to their journey. Now, well, imagine this world then, and it's not that far away. It's not even as uh, you know, like self-driving, which is perpetually in the, into the future. This is something that I envision will happen within five years, that there will be some, some new enhanced kind of awareness possible for the rider, which allows them to avoid dangerous situations, or even the vehicle might interfere with a, with a situation which might become dangerous. This is the, the, the true uh, uh, application of intelligence uh, on vehicles. It's not to make it uh, so you don't don't um, pay attention. It's more to enhance your 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 uh, your awareness as you as you're actually in control of this vehicle. So I, I, I sorry. Yeah, go yeah, go ahead. No, it just a note of optimism because I think we haven't yet gone that far down the road, and there is a lot more that can be done with the technology that is personal technology today. That can be uh, made made uh, uh, usable with the, for 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 micro vehicles. Yeah, and Horace, I think you make a very good point there because uh, you know not only in terms of personal technology, but also the technology on the actual scooter. I mean, something that we have uh, on our scooter is uh, like geofencing te uh, technology, of course, which allows us to put in what we call slow speed zones, uh, which might be a street that's outside of a school. It might be, you know, a um, around pavements or shopping areas where people shouldn't be riding in twenty kilometers an hour they should be riding in six so mm. the same speed as walking and, and cars you know, don't even what, have this can you imagine no this? cars don't even have this mm. yes that's what's so crazy mm. like we could do this in less than three years with mm. the e-scooter industry mm. uh, cars have been around for a hundred and they are still so reluctant to uh, making the streets safer for it everyone be, be, I mean, it is so obvious for safety in cars for example to simply not exceed the speed limit not allowing the driver now this is coming into yes. some use but it should have been done decades ago because it was possible to do decades ago and yet uh, here yes. we are and, and and yet they put the burden on the scooters to observe the speed limits electronically you yeah, see, exactly. it's, it's the newcomer who is put under all of these constraints and not the incumbent yeah. who who is going around actually causing all the damage. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's a good place to be, though. It's good that yeah, we're it's, 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 it's not just that. It's, it's also it's also that it's also that I think that if we if what we say right in the implementation of these technologies is, is what we want to focus on, at least as much as anything else is the safety aspect that will become part of the t of the innovation narrative. Right. What I say to people, what I, what I say about AVs is that I think we have already reached the point that AVs can contribute significantly to reduce reduction of car accidents and car related death. But we may have to facilitate that a little bit. We may have to put signaling in place mm -hmm. so that, you know, AVs have a little bit more support. They don't have to try and read every traffic sign. Why can't we treat them as technical innovations which we support? Same for scooters. I think exactly as you say, Horace, there are ways to make these things more safe if we choose to focus on that rather than the other kind of innovation. I think that's itself an opportunity. Adam, there's one issue in, in mobility safety which doesn't get talked about enough, which is... 
and this is not perfect on the scooter side, but um, it's better, I think, than sitting in a car, which is um, the health aspect, right? One of the most unsafe things people do is not exercising. Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't talk about that enough. And the bicycle is obviously, in principle, an, ex an machine for exercise. Do you feel that as we move to e-bikes and scooters and kind of electrified micromobility, we will lose that safety or health dimension? Or where are you at with that? Um, I, that actually, I think uh, they're, I guess in my mind, they're different things. Um, and I would say that, uh, yes, for the vehicles that we are considering, um, obviously one is getting a lot less uh, exercise and, and, and uh, biped uh, mobility. Um, but I think that um, overall what we're gaining, though, is as uh, we shift uh, away from internal combustion engines, the, the, the improvement in human health is going to be very significant. Um, mm. I, I don't really know exactly where that's all going to shake out, um, mm. but obviously there's a very big difference. I, I think mm. there's a point that I just wanted to come back to that Horace mentioned about uh the killer app for augmented reality and, and integration with helmets. I think that, in fact, what you're raising is extremely interesting. And I'd point out that what you're describing has been in use in military applications going back at least to the 1980s. Um, and this is technology that exists. What, you mean heads-up displays? Heads-up displays that are yeah. integrated into yeah. a helmet. Yeah. So that yeah. you can actually look at something and a, mm. a, even in the 1980s, you were able to target a specific mm. object that you were looking at. <laughs> just simply Karen, by when am I going to get my heads up display? Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, but I mean, it, it was integrated into the helmet itself. So I think these are all yeah. technologies that exist and that will go a very long way towards improving human health yeah. uh, in the form of fewer broken bones. For sure. But yeah, I think yeah. can, when I I get add, when it, can I add something to the to the do, to yeah. the mobility the 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 health aspect as well because I'm a big fan of e-bikes and I I'm a big fan of cycling in general as well and I actually own both um, so when I when when I switch between the two of course a, 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 a mountain bike that is unpowered is is uh, it seems uh, much more difficult to use but. When I measure, because I have an Apple Watch, it measures my mm. my calor calories. Um, mm. And after riding either one of these, I usually consume the same number of calories. What happens with the e-bike is I end up going faster and probably up hills more <laughs> than I would otherwise. And I think yeah. it's... Yeah. It's it's up to the individual now. If they're if they are not inclined to ever pedal, um, maybe we can encourage them to do so. And again, yeah. here we get into this whole thing about incentives. Um, I envision also that it's it, you know because of the the tradition in Europe of s pedalic or a pedalic in general is pedal assist mm -hmm. uh, cycling mm -hmm. as 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 the only way to do things. Um, but because there's intelligence in the system, we can award people points. We can give them mm -hmm. journey opportunities that give them some something new to look at. And I actually put this out as a, as a very provocative thing a few years ago. And I said, imagine a company that sold rides, that sold vehicles, and um, and got a subscription service 
for people using these vehicles, but measuring their caloric uh, um, output, mm. you know, how much would that company be worth? Well, the answer at the time was $8 billion. That company is Peloton. And that company mm. makes money by selling sweat. And it, in, in all, but in, you have one condition to meet that you cannot by any means go anywhere while using it. Mm. Now think about proposing mm. someone, hey, you can get that whole <laughs> Peloton experience. You can, we, you can pay me for the sweat you're going to generate, yeah. but you'll yeah, also yeah. end up somewhere else, maybe a place that's fun to go to. Now, mm. no one's done this yet. And this is to me is one of the holy grails of micromobility is combining mm. an incentive system for exercise and or active micromobility if mm. you want to be you know uh, um, mm. uh, um, pedantic but it's 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 the, the uh, this is out there as a huge huge uh, mm. uh, ocean of money waiting to be made mm. i mean what, one of the issues in, in terms of safety is actually just to make sure that you know from the from the public sector side that that, that um i was going to say cycle lanes but what we're really talking about is is you know is mobility lanes for micro mobility devices is that they are fully protected from street traffic right because Cara, when you talk about safety it's not just the cars inherently are much more dangerous it's that they are the main cause of risk and injury and death to people on cycles and micro mobility right uh, and so it turns out to be the case that if you want people to use these vehicles fully separated cycle of micro mobility lanes is a big factor it is a big factor in, in the in the decision process it's certainly a big factor in the choice in the experience in the quality of the experience and it's definitely a massive factor in the in the risk and um, morbidity factors um so on 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 pushing this stuff forward right where are we at with money right because what you've done caro is you've become you know you've taken on giant bombs of money from vcs let me start with you, Horace. Is that the best way to go as we get VCs excited because they've got quite narrow goals? And my concern on behalf of companies that are driven by, you know, or enabled by VC money is that, is that they're not so able to work with the public sector or look at these things that might be slower growth oriented or less competitive. Absolutely. Do you, think, do you think VC yeah, money is the correct way to drive or not? So, so this actually predates my, you know, I, I, I've been a student of Clay Christensen and thinking about innovation for 20 years. Mm. Um, mm. And he asked this question, how do you properly fund innovation? And the only opportunities we have had historically were either companies funded internally through cash flow, or they go, you know, if it's a startup, you find someone who is willing to, to, uh, to fund you. Um, and, and this leaves a lot of opportunities which are longer term, which are, are, let's say, requiring patient money, um, which might require, as you say, even nonprofit type of relationship. Uh, um, and, and it's not the total, this problem is unsolved on a global scale. We have globally trillions of dollars which are unallocated because they cannot find this narrow straw with which to feed the, the new ideas out there. And so in some ways, mm -hmm. the, the venture capital industry is, is a tiny, tiny, tiny pimple on the world of capital, right? It's, it's very small because most of those trillions of dollars out there are earning negative interest, right mm. they, they are they're not being allocated so it, it's an open problem in general but i will say that transportation um needs a new approach it's not as i you know even though i say it's very similar to smartphones but the funding and the time cycles we are looking at much longer time cycles um i was mm. hopeful three years ago that we would be maybe further uh, faster along but some things are fast some things are not as fast so Mm. I, I don't know the answer. This is one reason why I joined a 
venture capital firm, Relay Ventures, it's very proactive about this question about how to properly structure financing for uh, for this sector. And um, mm. and so we really want to talk to everyone about it and, and understand opportunities. But, but um, you know, there are compliance issues and other things about uh, the capital markets in general, which make it very difficult. But but nonetheless, I'm optimistic again that the experiments will be will be uh, undertaken. I, my impression is that there are very significant differences in in incentives because, of course, as uh, I guess maybe the only manufacturer uh, in this conversation, our timeframes are significantly longer, um, mm. just by virtue of the, the the nature of the work and the fact that we're dealing with a uh, a different set of uh, regulations with which either exist or we have to come up mm. with a way to design around and to deal with. Mm. Um, mm. And that means that by definition, there are going to be these um, areas where there's, there's significant uh, time lags relative to certain other elements of uh, the chain. And I think that that's normal in any uh industry that's that's really just taking off i mean also in your case adam i was, I was alluding to it before in terms of who are you selling to right there's an issue there are there are there are there are unusual scaling dynamics in relation to venture capital because you've you've got you will have i believe a very um uh sort of dis, dis, discontinuous sales cycle right you will have large contracts with large operators that will take a long time to set up it's not just going to be massive growth Correct. on you know kind of exponentially um i do think by the way that you know that it's interesting that you describe you know how finance needs to be restructured a little bit around these kinds of things horace with with relay ventures um is, is the conversation i've had with adam as to should you be approaching strategic investors that are already in the industry does that give you the right partnership base or they, do they then stifle your growth? Should you be going direct to consumer? Should you have a hybrid approach? Should you sell to you know the platform companies? Should you sell to product sector? Should you sell to logistics? I mean, I think that um, these are the conversations I, I'm very happy to see playing out. Um, and uh, and and and, I, and I, this kind of alludes to what I was saying at the very beginning, which is I think that tech and tech money, as it relates to sectors that are not SaaS and apps and pure digital stuff. They, they need to learn. It needs to have a sense of exactly what it takes to build a, not just a, a, a product, but a market and, you know, regulatory relationships that justify, um, you know, that, that can use, uh, you know, private finance the best. Caro, so, and I'll try to make this not a hard question since you've had a lot of hard questions, but let me put it this way. Do you feel that venture capital, because it's been, it's been very um, positive about what you're doing, is going to continue to be the right partner to finance what you're doing as it becomes more and more aligned with public sector objectives and requirements? Um, I mean, I will not go in too deep into this because it's really not my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it does take a lot of muscle to build the type of business that Boy is mm -hmm. uh, because we're not just a tech company. We're a transportation service that has physical vehicles on the street literally 24 7 uh, 365 days a year right mm. and we have grown so fast over you know mm. the, the last three years going from yeah nothing to a thousand employees and mm. you know yeah we're, we're just not uh, you know a startup any longer uh, and we've had some pretty amazing backers um, with us on our journey and uh, i think they really see um, 
both an opportunity within the industry, but also within our people and with Voy as a company. And um, I think it's really great to see, and I think we will continue to see, um, support, visa support for our industry and the mm. belief in the industry moving mm. forward. And so, so, for us right now, it's, uh, it, it is a great setup. Yeah, so, so I, I wasn't really trying to, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't angling you to justify that venture capital is necessary. I actually think it is necessary. I think that money that comes in to help scale things like yours is, is very, it's, it's extremely helpful, but, you know, probably essential. So I think that, I think that's well proven. My, my point was more that do you think, and again, so it may, be, it may not be a question that you're able to answer, but just in, in general terms, do you think that venture capital is going to be sufficiently aligned with the dynamics of public sector engagement? Because, because in the American case, for example, like Uber avoided having anything to do with the public sector for the first 10 years of its life, which I think was a massive mistake because it was always going to end up being in a situation where rather like scooters are going to have to justify its position in the mobility mix of a city. And so it's been fiddling with this kind of multimodal thing for a long time. It kind of turns it on and off all the time. It doesn't really work and they're not really sure what they're doing, but I think they need to get that sorted. And it's, and one of the reasons I think they haven't done it is because venture capital, I think culturally says, just go and build a consumer market, grow, 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 let everything work itself out around you. Do you think, to make that very specific, venture capitalists and the, the, of the kind that want to back your continued growth will understand that the world you're moving into is one that may have constraints on growth, may have slower growth, and may have other sort of mixed objectives because of how you are required and incentivized and how you yourself want to engage with public sector and public infrastructure issues? Uh, I see what you mean. And I think absolutely. I mean, um, our investors, at least, they understand as well as, uh, you know, anyone that's working operationally uh, within the industry that the cities are the key to our success, right? If mm. we can't operate in a city, yeah. then, uh, you know, we end up as like some of our American peers just thrown out. Mm. So uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's crucial for people working within the micromobility industries to work together with the cities mm. in order for us to like not only with their short term either, but mm. really building long term relationships with the city, with the citizens, and hopefully together continue to invest in, mm. uh, you know, infrastructure that's gonna mm. allow micro mobility to grow even further. Mm. So mm. I think from a VC perspective, um, so far um, we haven't had uh, any issues with that, and mm. I. I, I think that they understand, mm. you know, that cities are crucial for us. Caro, mm. I could see that what basically what you're saying, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is that cities are stakeholders in what you're doing. So whether mm. they're actually mm. going to invest with cash or they're going to invest mm. some other That's way, true. that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What I would say is that one of the reasons why I ask you these hard questions, Caro, is that you can then give definitive answers because I think what you said kind of needs to be written in, in, in sort of brass tablets and sent out to the venture capitalists and cities of the world, which is the cities are have not innovated fast enough and not investing fast enough. So who's going to do it? Who's going to bring, who's going to try this stuff? It's going to be the venture capitalists. Having said that, the venture capitalists need to understand that as exactly as you said, the cities are the future. City scale contracts is the future, making mobility, multimodality with micro mobility baked in just part of the whole concept of the 15-minute city, attaching mobility as a composable proposition to real estate. If there's understanding on both sides of how you know tech in the real world evolves, I truly think we can accelerate you know the value out of this stuff. So it's great for you to say it definitively because it means we have a, a reference quality answer to, to share on both sides of the conversation. Okay, we're, we're going to run up soon, but let me just ask you you know this one, which is which is the obvious one. Where where are we going from here? Let's start and let's do it in two steps. Technology-wise, and we'll start with you, Horace, um, and then 
culturally, narratively, re-regulatory in whatever other way? What is what is next? What's either what's coming or what's required to unlock massive opportunity and micromobility technically, and then what's next and what's required sort of socially, culturally, narratively? Let's start with you, Horace. Yeah, I think so. Just taking on the framework that, that this is a, what I consider disruptive, meaning that it is very low end, it iterates quickly, it climbs up a performance trajectory as fast as it can to become good enough for most people. It's not good enough today. Uh, it is good for some, but not all. And so what I think will happen is, uh, you know, things that will make it more comfortable for people who are less able to ride the vehicle today. So we're going to see comfort. We're going to see weather. We're going. We're going to see safety. We're going to see, uh, um, you, you know, the the tricky uh, onboarding process become better and better. So there's there's a need to, you know, perhaps we're not even we're not through the early adopters yet. We haven't uh, saturated the early adopter market, but we have to look forward to the to the mainstream adopter, and that will require a leap in terms of. Uh, again, ease of use and, and comfort and so on. Uh, it, it happened with the car. It happened with the personal computer. It happened with this phone. It happened with everything else in the past. It, it's following right on schedule what's happened before. I just So it's easy to anticipate. Um, I think the, the part of that also leads into the cultural question because if, if you make it easy, people will start to discover new things to do with it. And one of the things I always say is that is it competing with switching miles, which I think it is, but it eventually will compete with uh, creating its own demand, creating a parallel universe of trips that are normally not taken. And the way I look at it culturally is I'm looking for language. I'm looking for people to start calling it different things. Um, We went through this language question about, you know, what do we call when you use, you type something to someone on a phone? We didn't have a word for it. It came to be known as texting. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in Europe, it was called SMS, which is you know far more uh, cryptic, but that's how things go. Um, and, and so I expect people to use new language to describe what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. They also describe places that they'll go with these vehicles, which they couldn't go with any other vehicle. And they're going to also do the third dimension is that it's going to enable people who have no other options. And I think this is about creating markets in, in non-consuming areas. Uh, the big mm-hmm. one, uh, and I think the elephant in the room, is the fact that two and a half billion people are going to be in, in, in cities that are, aren't there today. And those people cannot mm-hmm. get into a car, will not be able to afford it. And even if they did, there was nowhere to park it. There's nowhere to drive it. So we need to really, especially those of us in the, the, the privileged nations of the world, we need to think hard about how to help those who are not. Now, not by giving them free things, but rather by going down there or uh, over there to to uh, start the you know building uh, building solutions. And and if we don't, they will come here for sure because they'll figure it out themselves. They'll certainly figure it out because it's a, it's, a, it's a screaming screaming demand. So uh, be aware of this uh, of this uh, non-consuming billions of people. Adam, so so in your view, what's next or what should be next, both in terms of technical progress and in sort of sociocultural narrative progress? So, uh, actually, I uh, would like to um, essentially violently agree with Horace in that um, 
what we've experienced, from my point of view, is that uh, there's been uh, suddenly a, a gigantic need, and we've been trying then to adapt uh, form factors or solutions vehicles uh, that have been more or less off the shelf into trying to fit this gap. And so that was mm. okay for the early adopters and those who were willing to go out and mm. to give it a try. But those are mm. not going to be vehicles that will work mm. at scale uh, to fix mm. this problem uh, mm. with literally billions of people. And mm. I think that uh, our thought has been that we essentially need to look at what the problem is and then try to make the vehicle that then is mm. going to address that problem. And that's going to be mm. then usable and attractive um, mm. for huge numbers of people in mm. these city environments, which in turn mm. then will drive huge amounts of innovation, which we can't even begin to predict today in all of these mm. different dimensions and, and changes in behavioral patterns. Um, so I, I think that that's where we're just now sort of getting to that point where there's going to be that next wave of vehicles, mm. that next wave of innovation and the next mm. step into uh, towards maturity in the industry. Mm. Okay, Karis, so just to run off, I mean, what's next? What should be next in terms of sort of technical progress and, and sociocultural kind of narrative innovation or whatever? <laughs> I mean, uh... I think in the end, uh, I'll keep it short. It's all about making it easier for people to leave their cars at home uh, mm. or not even have a car. Um, mm. And I think if you can plan, book, pay for multimodal trips um, in one place uh, in a more smooth way, um, it's going to make it easier for people to make smart decisions and to make more sustainable decisions and uh, hence also make our cities more sustainable overall. And uh, I think that is really the key, making it easier for people. Mm. Okay, well, we have to stop, but it feels like we've literally just started. I mean, it, there are so many dimensions to this, and it, it not only is that itself exciting, it's incredibly exciting to watch all of your progress, uh, respectively, in, in these in the in these various sort of domains of the micromobility issue. It's been a total delight. Thank you so much for joining in, and we'll keep the conversation going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.